Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by John McEnroe, Goran Ivanisevic, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. When I was a kid, we could not even buy it. It was aspirational, and now it is available worldwide, and I cannot think of a greater gift for a tennis fan, a player, or if you just want to get a friend an iconic tracksuit or a t-shirt from the Paris Masters or the Monte Carlo Country Club, you got to do that. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, and first was an elite player and then the coach of Harvard University, where he held that post for 42 years, winning 21 Ivy League titles. Additionally, he is credited as one of the original principals in the UTR, the rating system that is all the craze right now. Coach Dave Fish is today's guest. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Super. And are you in are you in Cambridge? No, I'm close, about four miles out. So bike ride away from Cambridge. Where are you? In Newton. You're in Newton. What about the Miracle of Science? You ever go get a burger at the Miracle of Science? No. They're in Cambridge over by MIT or no? No, I haven't. We've got a wild willies here. That's the best burger around. So that's the best burger. Uh, gentlemen, you hear was the coach of the Harvard University tennis team for 42 years. And you you went to Harvard, correct? I did. And this is one of the inside people that, you know, his name has kept popping up and popping up and popping up on my show from different people. And I couldn't help but reach out. So uh, that's Dave Fish. Uh, Coach Dave Fish is uh, with me. And, Coach, uh, I got to tell you, as a New Englander and I was born in Boston, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. No, it's my pleasure, Craig. And and thanks for being a a person that shines a spotlight on a lot of good stuff in tennis. We're all lucky to have tennis in our lives. Listen, let's just get right into this. As you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the -the off-the-court report. What's happening in uh, Beantown these weeks? Are you guys pushing through the winter? Are you guys starting to turn the corner on the weather? Yeah, we're we're getting a beautiful day tomorrow. We've had about a week of good weather. Very, very uh, much better than we would expect. And now that we've had our COVID shots, we're feeling a little bit more comfortable getting out and playing indoors. So I've been back and playing tennis for the last month and loving it. So now, do you ever see Mayotte? You ever see Mayotte? Do you ever go over to the Thoreau? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Timmy was our volunteer assistant coach for a couple of years, um, <clears throat> some years back. And then he started a great academy out at Thoreau. And so uh, I follow him and I follow his tweets. And uh, he's one of the funnier people you'll ever meet. What other clubs and stuff do you bounce around to? Where are you, where are you playing your tennis? Well, I rejoined uh, Longwood Cricket Club where I grew up playing. My parents joined it uh, as absent absentee members so that I could have some place to play because we didn't have a lot of places to play in New England, in Boston. And so after having not played seriously for 40 years, 45 years, because I was coaching, um, when I retired, I said, gee, I, I love this sport at one time. Let's see if I can get back into it without hurting myself. And so <clears throat> for the last year, I've been just having a ball playing. I've fallen in love all over again with tennis. Tennis is wild the way it ebbs and flows. Like you could coach, you could coach Harvard, but you, your tennis probably got worse while you were coaching. Well, my coach always said he became a better coach um, when he stopped worrying about his own game. And I'm, and and I think I took that to heart more than most people because I wanted to be the best coach I could ever be. And so I stopped worrying about my own game. And and uh, and then as when you're coaching, of course, you're never thinking about moving your feet, anything else. So. So had to burn through some habits. Let's move into the second set. This is the on the court report. You know, generally speaking, this is where we talk about the business of tennis as it pertains to the guest. And you are the very uh, often least mentioned cog in the in the UTR machine. I believe the way I know the story is is that 
these brainiacs that created the algorithm for UTR brought it to you. And you brought it to the rest of this group and, and, and now you're no longer involved. But I think that this is a good place to just learn about your involvement and what the UTR algorithm, the sort of the genesis of it is. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I had uh, I had been on the, the ITA, the Intercollegiate Tennis Association Board of Directors for a number of years. <clears throat> and we were always looking at, you know, w- what can we do to make college tennis better? And as we looked at college tennis, we started saying, well, juniors aren't competing against college players ever. They used to routinely do it. And they're not getting a chance to compete against the young pros much. And so I began to look around for how could we measure talent regardless of age or gender. Found out about universal tennis through a coaching friend, Daryl Cummings, down at Old Dominion, and <clears throat> called up the, the really the kind of the brainchild behind it, Dave Howell. And in an hour talk with him, I learned more about what was ailing our development system and our whole system than I had in probably 15 or 20 years. And so I invited him up to Boston. At the end of it, he had us all sold. And so I wrote a very large paper, long paper, that my friends read half of and said, quit while you're ahead, Dave. And it began to spread as a concept because UTR was like a tree falling in the woods. If nobody was there to hear it, they didn't know about it, it didn't make any noise. And so I felt that I could play a role in evangelizing the potential for a rating system to to lead us to the kind of level-based systems that we see are so successful in Europe. So, so it wasn't some brainiacs over at Harvard in the basement uh, figuring this thing out. No, it wasn't. It was it was a very straightforward concept, Craig. <clears throat> Simply of getting people, as we say, getting people in the right seat on the bus or the right round in a tournament. The French system is brilliant because they have a what's called a staggered entry draw that may last a month or two. And, and players challenge in at their level for the right to play someone better who enters the tournament at a later level. It's the most obvious way of putting people together that I've ever seen. And somehow, 60 years later, we haven't done it yet here. So then what happened? Well, so what happened is we, we, raised, we raised money and we raised the profile. It was an instant winner with college coaches because as a college coach, I had to be able to judge the level of talent in a kid from Melbourne or Moscow or Minneapolis. And so it became an instant winner for me. And because it was such an effective tool for college coaches to measure talent globally, instead of just USTA rankings or ITF rankings, et cetera, the kids started to, it started to matter to the kids because the USTA rankings became less relevant if the coaches had this global metric for, for deciding talent. And so that was the real issue. But I think the most important thing, Craig, is that any rating is simply a number, is that if you put a lot of people together, they'll, they'll come up with a pretty darn good rating system. And UTR is an excellent rating system. And there are other ways to do it. But the main thing that it should lead to is to get us to a level-based play system. And so, so the rating is just a means to an end. And we shouldn't lose a lot of sleep over you know, hundreds of a decimal point in the rating. You know, Coach Endelman, Howie Endelman at Columbia says hello. He um, had nothing but great things to say about you. He really was effervescent in his talk. I, you know, I, I, I called him in an effort to get prepared to talk with you. And he said that he considers the UTR a tremendous tool. He says that his average guys are 13. The average player is a 13 on Columbia University's team. And when they're, when they're looking at prospects, you got to be a 12 on the way yeah. up. That's pretty much the lowest. What is it at Harvard, generally speaking? Are those numbers, are those numbers in sync? Yeah, very similar. Yeah. And, 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 of course, UTR is always adjusting its algorithm based on the data that it gets. They've got some brilliant science guys, mathematician guys, yeah. who are looking at the data from Australia or, uh, or Russia or et cetera. So they're all fine-tuning it to see that they can get the most accurate measurement. But that's about right what Howie says. If you're trying to get to go to UCLA, what number do you, what, what number do you need to be base level? 
Well, honestly, Columbia and Harvard have been playing at an awfully high level, Columbia even higher in yep. the last few years. So uh, that's going to make them competitive for a spot at UCLA, too. I mean, UCLA. 12, 12's on the rise, 13s. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and people have seen the value of an education now. So the, so the Ivies now are competitive with so many of the scholarship. So now I understand you're no longer part of the team. Did they? Did you make a fortune? Did they buy you out? Are you just sitting pretty? I I worked on it essentially pro bono for for seven or eight years, and then finally the the people who had founded it said, "Dave, you've been such a part of this. We want to offer you this stake in it." And so, but we raised a couple million dollars and and enough to really prove the concept. And then Mark Leshley came in and bought the majority ownership of it, and I was the head of development for a couple of years. And then decided that since it, it was largely going in a, in a technology direction and working a little bit more toward the higher pro level, I wanted to get back to my efforts to, to enable local play to become more affordable for people. For our listeners, Mark Leshley is a son of a famous Danish player, Jan Leshley. He also was the captain at Harvard University, I think in the must have been the early 90s 1990 yep and uh, he played one there I believe and he made a fortune uh in Silicon Valley and he is the principal of uh, UTR now so they're keeping it in the Harvard family at some level coach you said that you're trying to make tennis more affordable in general is that something is that your current business is that what you're doing now yeah yeah so our efforts really Craig are to take the the opportunity that UTR has created and, and unfortunately the world has a tendency to to uh, fragment itself so you've got a WTN world tennis number coming out soon but the main point is that if 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 we can get people rated so that you have people of different ages and genders playing each other locally you've automatically reduced the cost of participation by 10x because you've taken out the the air travel and the hotels and the car rentals and the missing school. And so that's why Europe is basically kicking our butts in tennis, uh, in addition to a number of other factors, but they've created such a dense mass of opportunity over there. The only way we can compete with it is if we begin to do it more locally and, and lower the participation costs. Um, and, and essentially the same time that we're worried about social equity and equality and, and, and accessibility, this, this would invite so many more people into the game if well, we made local opportunities available. I had, a, I had a great chat with Emilio Sanchez, and I asked him about player development and why what's broken here in the United States. And I think that the takeaway that I got was that the club system in Spain was so strong that everyone with all the best players are just hanging out their club, playing for their club, getting grinded by great coaches. And it's really a, it's almost like a lifestyle play. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and it's, and it's a lifestyle where the, the juniors are automatically interacting on a daily basis with their older, stronger peers. Whereas the United States, we are so fragmented and stratified but the 12 and unders are playing, you know, you've got the red, orange, and green balls. They're playing a certain level. Then you get the college is different from high school is different from USTA junior. Um, it's all fragmented. It's, it's carved up and it's, and it's basically dismembered what used to be a very holistic development pathway for juniors. And Elliot Telsher, for instance, when he was director of player development for the USTA. And I think he got to like five in the world. Well, he, he, he basically said one time to me, Dave, I never would have been ready for the pros if as a high school player, I hadn't daily been training with the guys at Pepperdine USC and UCLA. And so the logic says, well, how many 16 year olds in the country can really beat the number one player on a, on a division one college team. Right. And, and so by not allowing our U S juniors to train on a regular basis, with their college and, and older peers, the way it happens in France or Spain, we're literally tying one hand behind their back and asking them to succeed in a global sport. It's, it's ridiculous to think that they can succeed at that. 
just so what's what is your vision and what is your execution plan well, the execution plan is to build much more local and regional centers of competition that used to exist before the ATP, WTA, and ITF all began to control access to the higher levels of the game by a point-chasing system. It basically, it's like an airline loyalty card, is you have to fly on my airline to get points. And there's so many other good developmental pathways. You've got the Australian money tournament circuit. You've got the college tennis. You've got the French money system. You've got the Spanish system. They're all tremendous development systems. But th therefore, in this normal, why do, you, why do you force players to chase points in Uzbekistan when they could be beating someone in college, that same player in college, and you give them no credit for it? So a real accessible world would be to take factor in the results from all of those systems and say, if you're good enough, this should be able to qualify you to get into a, a, a qualifying round to a future or a challenge or et cetera. It's, tennis never really fully opened up. Coach, you're vibrating at a different wavelength than everybody else. You spent so many years on that Harvard campus man, with all those, with all those brainiacs. Well, you know, Craig, very few people in the game ever get the chance to look at it from a 50,000-foot view. And so tennis just sort of evolved, and we fell into bad habits. And we didn't, we didn't have to re-engineer ourselves. This COVID actually gives us a chance to, to look at it with a clear lens and say, hey, there are a lot of fault lines that began to show up right away. That, that most of us who've been studying it have known have been there for 20 or 30 years. But now's a chance to reboot, to build a much more competitive, highly competitive, highly affordable system. And that's why you've got the ITA working with the USTA. They're talking about how do we have more level-based opportunities? How do we have the juniors interacting with the college players? How do we put a little more prize money in so that the better, the better young pros can make it more affordably here. We used to have this, the USTA and the, and the, and the, and the uh, American tennis used to produce fantastic number of top players in the world because they had these accessible local regional circuits. And now it's just become unaffordable for people. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Coach, where does your tennis begin? Boy, uh, it began uh, about 100 yards away from my house. Where was that? That was in, in, in Newton, Massachusetts, right where I am now. And uh, You're still where you grew up? Yeah, I lived, away. I lived in another uh, city for, for a number of years in a, in, a, in a first part of my life and then came back to Newton. And curiously, Craig, this won't matter, but my parents both went to Hope High School in Providence. Oh, wow. Right on the... Right on the so your yeah, parents are yeah, Rhode Islanders? Yeah. Oh, come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. So so I played many tournaments down there. I played at the casino, and, you know, it's a wonderful part of tennis history. So you're, so you're a New Englander through and through. I am, through and through. And, you, and your parents love tennis? They didn't know much about tennis. They were purely recreational players. You know, my dad served kind of frying pan grip, and when I got his serve back when I was probably 10, I was, like, in heaven. And I used to go down across the playground and hit on the wall. The bricks were misplaced, and I had to chase a lot of balls. And, and I just did it for hours. And then I finally got pretty good. I was kind of chunky when I was young, but I had awfully good hands. And so then I got a chance to, to uh, belong to Longwood Cricket Club, which was kind of a mecca for tennis. And that gave me an opportunity to continue to get better. For our listeners, Longwood is uh, one of the storied clubs in, in the United States, and there was a great tournament there for a lot of years. Did you have any involvement with that tournament? I did, yeah. I was a ball boy growing up there. So I watched, you know, McKinley and Ralston and Osuna Palafox, and it, we just sat there and our mouths were drooling, and then we'd go out and practice for hours after we'd do that. And was, uh, were they playing on grass there yeah, then? Yeah. Then it became a hard true tournament. It did, but initially in 1963, it was the reemergence of pro tennis. Uh, the New England Merchants Bank put in $10,000 pot, and they played, and they had Gonzalez and Labor. I mean, it was we were just drooling watching pros that we had never seen before. 
did Bud Collins by chance come into your purview at some juncture? Absolutely, because Bud would play at Longwood in his bare feet, and he had his uh, famous pants then. And uh, no, he was a, he was as we say a colorful character, and he did so much for tennis because nobody else wanted to cover it at the time. Bud so did so he, much for tennis, by the way. Bud yeah. did so much for tennis. Amazing person, yeah. But so, and for our listeners, Bud Collins, by far the most, in at least in from my from my perspective, the most significant tennis media personality that there has ever been was a Boston guy. He wrote for the Boston Globe and he covered a lot of sports, but he, he loved tennis and he really banged the drum for tennis in the seventies. And he was, I think, crucial to the sports growth, telling the stories of players. Yep. He was. And actually my coach, Jack Barnaby did the first telecasts uh, with Bud Collins uh, over at MIT on, on TV, on WGBH, the public television channel. That was the start of tennis. And I think Bud was a little better at it than my coach was. So I, I, he went on. <laughs> and you, when you say your coach, you went to Harvard, you got into Harvard, and you played tennis at Harvard. I did, yes, yes. You got to explain that. You, so you were, you, you, were you a good tournament player? Were you a good high school player? Like what kind of player yeah. were you? Well, no, I, I, w- I became the number one junior in New England um, by the time I was 17. But there were many other good players. I just happened to hit a hot streak at the end. So, so I was a, a, definitely a person who could, who could go and play at Harvard. And uh, my sophomore year, I think I ended up playing number two on the team. And then, unfortunately, got into some tennis elbow issues, which affected my play, which is how I fell in love with coaching. Because I was sitting on the sideline listening to my coach and saying, hey, I can't play, but I can sure listen and I can help my teammates do better. Fell in love with it. Now, what was it like being at Harvard in in the 60s? I mean, what was that experience like? Craig, two of my four years ended in student strikes. We didn't take exams. The the university shut down. Oh, because of Vietnam? Yes. That's interesting. My mother didn't have graduation at BU because of, of protests. Um, but yeah. we, had, we had tear gas we had tear gas in the streets and riot police and phalanxes and brick throwing and tear gas and and uh, it was a it was an exciting crazy time and for the most part we were pretty naive um, at that point as, as as freshmen and sophomores at Harvard so we were kind of, our miles were just kind of hanging open can you believe this is happening to us you guys are supposed to be the smartest smartest kids in the whole country um was it is it a very arrogant place to go to college? Is there a lot of a lot of very snobbish uh, brainiac people, or is it just a bunch of kids just trying their best? It's 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 all those things, Craig. Yeah. It's the it's the kids that will win the Westinghouse Science Award and go on to win a Nobel Prize. You know, there are probably three hundred of them in the class of two thousand. Yeah. The rest of the rest of us are just trying to be excellent at whatever we do, and and it, and it kind of has a vitality to it. So. So the fun part of recruiting for us was when we would bring kids on campus. And of course, they're expecting to find kids with three inch thick glasses, you know, and, and, and long curly hair. And, but then they come on, well, these guys are normal. I said, well, yeah, exactly. This is, we're just all having fun and we love to do it together. And, and, you know, if you're a talented enough student, you want to be around other people that are pushing you too. So when you graduated Harvard, what happened to you next? Well, I actually, uh, I actually took a year off, my fantasy year off. You know, this is when all the great things you imagine would happen to you. And um, uh, taught tennis out in California and then down in, in uh, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona at the famous John Gardner Tennis Ranch. And then came back and actually started my um, pre-med work backwards at Harvard um, to start to, plan- to prepare for medical school. And... Uh, and um, and and then it, as I begun my my uh, my first courses at Harvard, Jack Barnaby, my coach, invited me out to dinner and said, "Hey, David, I'm thinking about retiring soon. Have you ever thought about coaching? I noticed you you seem to have a real affinity for this." I said, "Well, Jack, you know they need they need good doctors up in rural Maine." And he said, "Well, just because they need doctors doesn't mean that's what you'll necessarily be good at." 
And so I went in and, and, and worked at some hospitals. When I fainted um, watching some surgery, I realized that maybe I should go into coaching. And so, uh, huh. so many people have thanked me that they're still alive today because I went into coaching. So, did you flunk out or pull out of med school? Did that happen? No, I never got to med school. I was going to do my pre-med work. My time at Harvard had been such a time of turmoil. We were just trying to keep our heads on straight. Yeah. And so after I got out and thought about it, said, what do I want to do? I thought, well, maybe I should try this. Uh, but in the end, I've never regretted being in coaching. I, I, I would all have... Jack Barnaby really um, put you in play, man. He That's an incredible dinner. Where'd you go eat? Where was it? <laughs> I went over to his house for dinner. And his, his wife was chiding him. Now, Jack, just because let, he wants to become a doctor, just let him go. And he said, well, no, 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 no. And he was persuasive, but it kind of, once I got the bit in my teeth, I couldn't think anything else. I wanted to be a coach and, and was grateful for the chance. So, so what year did you become head coach? 76. What year did you stop being head coach? Uh, 2018. Wow. Coach. So it was a few years. What was it like to have James and Thomas Blake, but really James Blake at your school? Oh, it was great fun. I mean, number one, they come from a fantastic family. How'd that happen, by the way? How'd you get them and they didn't turn pro? Well, Tommy was the, probably the number one player in New England, and his family had always stressed. His mom was from England, and, and they had always stressed education. And so it was a pretty natural. Um, and Tommy was a late developer, got to about six foot five. And he was about as as um, as as kind a person as you could meet. He just did not have a mean bone in his body. And so he wouldn't have been someone on the USTA's um, radar. Uh, and so he came to Harvard. And then his younger brother, um, who we used to call Tommy, he was six foot five, Tommy Gun, because he had a big serve. So naturally, we called James squirt gun uh, when, when he was this pencil thin little 14 year old. And so he knew all the guys. And, um, and so I think it was a fortunate for us that Tommy was on the team, was captain, et cetera. And James loved the guys and we had a very fine team at the time. So, so he knew coming that he would get good training. And the plan always was he was like a shooting star. Um, and his junior coach, Brian Barker, really one of the finest coaches I know. He's, he's like a player whisperer, sort of understands how people think and what the pressures are like. And so he and James had a wonderful um, partnership. Um, the, parent, the parents were terrific with it. And so um, it worked out. And, and James, you know, we couldn't quite tell how good he was going to get, but he sure looked awfully good. You know, the names Pelangian come up, Dickie Herbs. Yeah. I don't know how many Ivy League championships you won. We won a few. How many, Coach? I honestly don't know. I, I, I really was never attached to that. I could never answer it when someone would ask me. Um, I, I was always trying to stay present and see if the next year I could be a better coach than I was the year before. Are you a believer in, in college tennis? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. But it could be much, much better, Craig, is that some of these ideas that we sort of brushed on, we touched on, are ways that make, could make college tennis much better. You know, the, the NCA got in and, and created a lot of recruiting rules that kept people, juniors, from interacting with college players for fear that someone would get an advantage. So they became much more restrictive than was necessary. And um, so when you reintegrate this formally connected fabric of player development that's one of the things we can do better and that's why these UTR tournaments and the UTR uh, ITA college series and the summer circuit series have all integrated these age groups much better and and should continue so so college tennis can actually get to be better and now the USDA is helping a ton with college players who are out on the summer circuit so they're providing they're providing coaching resources for them so it's a much healthier relationship now than it was back in 1990 when the USTA was suggesting that if you go to college, we'll basically cut you off. Is um, cheating in college tennis an out of control problem? Uh, in, in a lot of programs, no. I, I do think that the college coach, um, I think that people are of different minds. Sometimes the college coach feels that that's what the umpires are there for. 
that's not my job. And I never believed that. I, I absolutely believe that we, it's up to us. And it always should have been um, up to players. You can't have, can't have policemen out there and expect them to do the work that you should be doing as a coach. Because if the kids don't, if they think they can get away with something for nothing or the encouragement of winning is so great that they're willing to, 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 to cut corners, um, that's humiliating. That's, that doesn't even respect the game. And that's not good for anybody. So who knows, you know, I, I think that we see more of it. Um, and I think we've gone in, in the other direction. I think there's less responsibility by players. And uh, I think the coaches could do a lot to put their foot down. How would you describe your coaching style and how did it change over 42 years? Um, I, I think, um, my my style was always that you're always coaching individuals. That's the beauty of tennis. And 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 I think the genius coaches, and you have to put in Boletari in there, um, despite what people might want to say, he's found a way to get, to find a window into those different champions' minds in a way that was different. And it, it, so that to me is brilliance. When you can find out what is that signature element in a person's game, that can make them stand out above all else. And, and, and the coaches that think that there's some kind of cookie cutter approach and that my way is the highway, they're never very successful. They can bring a person to a certain level, but they will never have that player's individual signature emerge in the way that the great coaches do. And so I always tried to, to, to have it not one size fits all, but everybody's an individual. And as my coach said, I said, well, Jack, don't you get tired of coaching after so many years? He said, Dave, you're not coaching for him. You're coaching a different mind each time. Everybody's different. And that's what keeps it fun. Did you ever have to bench players, give them, give them like very tough, stern? Did you ever have to throw any of them out of college? Like what, what's some of the things that you had to do? Well, I didn't have to throw them off out of college, but I did ask a few players to leave the team. And, and, and curiously, in most cases, it usually resulted later in a kind of uh, rapprochement and, and a sort of respect for each other, uh, where people have come back and said, coach, you know, I now, <laughs> one really funny one person, just a delightful guy off the court, but he could be a terror on court. And, um, and, and finally had to ask him to leave the team because it was not, it was not the standard that we demanded. And years later, he said, Dave, my son is just like me. Now I know what you put, what I put you through. Right. <laughs> so, and, and we give each other a hug when we see each other. And it's, it's a, you know, it's an educational process, Craig. It's like, these are all, these are all people in the process of becoming, and we have to be patient with that, but, but still firm in setting them a high ideal to and, aim for. And what about X's and O's? Did you try to get your players better technique wise, strategy wise, or, are they already there? No, no, they're not already there. <clears throat> so they're 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 generally far from being there, strategy-wise. And <clears throat> and basically, if you think about um, um, what a player comes to, he comes to you with a general set of skills. And what you're trying to do is to do what a Federer or Nadal has done. Is they boil those skill set down into four or five things that they do at a level of excellence that it's it just remarkable. So it's the difference between what we would call a short order cook in a diner where they got 300 things on the menu and, and, a, and a gourmet cook at Ritz Carlton is that they can cook five meals at a gourmet level. And that's what the top pros can do. And, and that's the process of coaching. So to the extent that you can bring someone along from a generalist to a specialist, that's when you can, you can squeeze the most out of their game. Did you have interesting moments or contact with, you know, the Harry Hopmans or the Tony Palafoxes or the Bulletaries? Are you are you part of a fraternity of coaches where you learned things through your years? Yeah, well, I I certainly learned from my coach, um, and then every time I met a new coach, every time I went to the NCAs. My favorite question uh, for people is what's the best thing that you've learned that's helped your coaching in the last five years? And everybody enjoys 
being asked about themselves. And so I would always find some kernel that I could take and, and sort of make my own and experiment with. And uh, so I was, I was like a sponge. I just tried to learn from everything. If we went to a coaching convention, the ITA coaching convention, we'd go to the seminars, but then five of us would get down with beers and Cokes in, in the evening, and we'd sit down and talk about doubles, and we'd talk about the nuances. And though that's where the real nuggets, you, you, sort of, you just have to dig hard for those nuggets, and that's how you get better year after year. How does one handle the evolution of the sport I mean, you see, you had a front row seat for 40 years of technology changes and guys getting fitter. And does it just sort of happen the way life happens? Is that just kind of how it all just shakes out? You just got to keep going. No, no. If, if, if you just think it'll happen to you, you're, you're misguided. You, ha you have to go out and seek it out because the people that are at the front line of these things, you're watching the pro players. You know, every five years, there's an evolution in the game. It used to be if you had one big talent uh, back in the 70s, you had one big talent. That could put you on a world-class level. You know, five or ten years later, you had to have two. You had to have sensational speed and a big serve. And now the players, are they're just refining what is possible and having this longevity so they continue to get better because they're, they're healthier than ever. And so so you you have to invest yourself as a student and because – um, my coach always set an example. He was curious about the world. And so, so I always tried to be curious and not satisfied. And so I would learn something new and someone else might not agree with it, but I'd try it, see if it worked. What's an example of that? Oh, um, there's a actually great example of a, of a, a very um, idiosyncratic, eccentric person, but a wonderful character named Bruce Wright, who coached Tim Mayotte. Um, who took him from probably 75 in the country to number one junior in the country when he was out of Springfield, Massachusetts. And this fellow had had a training as a gymnast, and he went back and started to look at tennis with a very fresh lens and, um, and, and created something, um, a, a way of, of, of working on posture and movement and a set of drills. It was actually brilliant for the time. And so um, those are the kind of people that often don't get considered well, they're not in the mainstream, but they're brilliant in their own way. And so I always tried to sort of see if I could find out what about that approach could cause a Tim Mayotte to be so good so fast and, uh, and, 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 and carve out the essence and see if we could bring that into our program. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a constant uh, process of discovery, I think. I mean, I think you're crazy if you repeat the same year 40 times. Hey, man, you do that, you're, you're, you ain't going to be around anyway. You aren't. Be out. Now, we'll tell the truth. What was the closest you ever were to being fired? Do you ever have a did – the, did, the, did the dean of the university come to you and say, listen, coach, we're not happy yeah. with the results? No, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, my standards for my results were always way higher than Harvard was expecting of me. <laughs> and, and the frustration was when they didn't, they, you know, they didn't see it, what I saw that could be accomplished. And so that was frustrating. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, one time early in my career, I, I got into trouble, had to go to the dean because a kid on my team said, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't keep me on the team fairly. And he wasn't very good, and I developed a handbook so that I had a consistent set of rules, and that was a good part of my coaching education. Um, I had been I had been fair, and the dean said, you know, you've treated him very fairly. He has no no right to be complaining. But I learned a very important lesson about being clear about what my principles were and and our standards and how you make the team, etc. Those are all part of cutting your teeth as a young coach. I've I got to proclaim some naivete. I don't know as much about college tennis as others, but did you just, does Harvard play Stanford over the yeah. years? Yeah. 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 What was it like, what was it like to see John McEnroe? Well, John was just gifted. I literally remember sitting at Kalamazoo with Andy Chase, who was at Stanford already, another Rhode Island player. And he was, literally saying, yeah, I told Coach Gould that this guy's going to be sensational. you got to get him. 
And, you know, we were sitting at Kalamazoo and I can remember to this day what it was. And so, you know, McEnroe is already a semifinalist at Wimbledon before he went to college, you know, just sensational. And so that used to be the norm. You used to see the Ralstons and the Stan Smiths and the Bob Lutz and everybody would go to college. And then the world changed. The tennis world changed. Yeah. So who's the greatest college player you ever laid eyes on? Well, it, 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 during my coaching time, um, this guy Noriega from University of San Diego was a beautiful player. I'd have to think about that. I don't. I, I uh, my my focus was always on my team and how to prepare them. So it wasn't as if I was sort of looking at that like a spectator all the time. The top college players. Do you have a top seven to ever play for Harvard? Is there a top seven? Is there a top five? Oh, I would never dare to say that. <laughs> I, I'd make too many enemies there. <laughs> is Blake by far the best player to ever play at Harvard? Yeah, I, I would imagine so. I mean, he's, he, he did well at a national level. Now, you, if you go back to the 20s when Harvard was winning all the national championships, national intercollegiate championship, but that's kind of pre-tennis history. Uh, back when Dwight Davis donated the Davis cup and they won the first Davis cup, et cetera. Right. A whole nother. That's like, yeah. that's, that's a whole nother era. Right. Yeah. That's like before, that's like before Christ. Now, um, <laughs> good. Did you guys ever have a chance to win the NCAAs? Was that something that you were trying? Were you trying? Uh, you we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't get the, the, the density of players enough. The lack of, uh, the lack of scholarships, yeah. So that it meant you could get a certain number of players and the academic standards were high. So the kids had to be committed to doing a certain, they weren't just coming there to pretend to be students. Yeah. They're coming there to be students. And so yeah. fundamentally that was going to be a very, very hard one to do. I mean, look at Columbia. Columbia's done tremendously well. Incredible. Um, but it's doubtful that they're going to win an NCAA championship, just different levels of training and amount of time on court. Is there a greatest moment for you as coach of Harvard University, greatest moment in tennis? Oh, gosh. You know, it, it, my coach always said, look, if you do the best you can with whatever team you have, that's, that's the measure of you as a coach. But, you know, we had some sensational wins when we've had our great teams and, and, uh, um, you know, done well in the national indoors or the NCAs and had players do individual honors. Um, um, the, the, the biggest thrill for me, and it's going to sound like a cliche, but when the kids graduate and they go on to do something of significance, not just be successful, but do something that's really significant, that really makes a difference to people, that's the most satisfying thing as a coach or when you can write a letter of recommendation for a kid who's just, you know, been, maybe he's played number 10 on your team and he never got to compete a lot, but then he goes on and wins a road scholarship. That's a cool thing, right? That's the cool thing. How many players would never get into Harvard if it wasn't for their tennis and, and, and vice versa? Yeah, well, there's no question that it, it is definitely an edge because in the regular admissions process, I think Harvard has like 44,000 people apply for 2,000 spots. There's 4% of the people getting in. So having an extra, uh, an extra hook but, um, is can can make all the difference but we but that person has to come with the full palette of i got to be a good person i got to have good grades people have to think well of me and and if then if you have those things the whole person concept then the tennis can absolutely make a difference and you probably can't be too stupid right like if you can't get into the university of rhode island you're not going to get even if you're the best tennis player in the country you're not no. going to harvard no, because it wouldn't be fair to the to the player. Is it is it everybody deserves to feel like they're successful? And and if you just let someone in that is just so far below the mean, they're not going to be comfortable. That's not good for their confidence either. There are many ways to to people mature later. They're often not ready for that. So Harvard's not for everybody. Harvard's not for everybody. What has your involvement been with pro tennis? Um, I would say that uh, I coached. Tim Mayotte briefly for a summer with Dickie Herbst back in 1990 when Tim was toward the tail end of his career. Um, and, and that was a great experience because going to Wimbledon and Queens and, and seeing, seeing how it was done and 
asking Henri Lacombe if he could be a practice partner and practicing with Stephen Edberg, Stephen Edberg. I mean, that's great. That's like a dream come true. Um, and, and then Eric Buderak, uh, who was the only Division Three player to come out of Gustavus Dolphus to, to get to the finals of the Australian Open in doubles, was our volunteer coach. So he would come and work with our players. And so I've, I've been sort of a uh, sideline fan, but I haven't been involved in, in sort of going out and following that path and coaching at that level because I was very happy doing what I was doing. So I, so I look at it more um, structurally from a sense of, of um, what is the infrastructure that allows someone to get to that level rather than do I, did I dream of coaching at that level. It's a pretty tough lift for, for, for coaches. It's, it's a very short shelf life. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I say it and you say what comes into your mind, okay? Sure. Your current racket. Oh, wow. I'm playing with a, with a Wilson Clash. What size is your grip? Uh, three eight with a with a, and I'll use an overgrip on it. That Wilson Clash is a nice racket as we get older because it's so headlight and so flexible. I think. Yeah, but I can't say that I played with a lot of rackets since I've been playing for the last year. So is that right? Yeah, there are a lot of great rackets out there, but uh, my friends at Wilson teed me up with them. How do you string your racket? Oh, uh, I, I just hand it to a guy and say, "Give me some strings that aren't too tight." So it doesn't feel like a board, but I, I, I'm total amateur about that. I'm just, uh, I don't want it too tight because it'll hurt my arm. <clears throat> uh, I see one of your trophies back there over your right shoulder. Where do you keep your trophies? Oh, God, they're scattered all over the place. Uh, uh, my, our mantle has a few now. I've gotten a few nice reward, nice awards since since uh, in the latter part of my career. Um there, I don't have a trophy case. When I was a junior, that was, you know, you live and die, you have your trophy case. You say, wow, I'm really something. And uh, I have no idea where those trophies are now. Your greatest win? My greatest win, I think in college, I beat um, Bill Colson, who was uh, had been a national clay court champion um, in the uh, 18 and under and went to Princeton, was probably three times the player that I was. Um, but on that day, I was good enough to beat him. Score? Oh, God, I don't remember. Um, could have been three sets. I don't even remember. But, you know, that gave me some measure of confidence in in, in what I could do. Hey, win's a win. Uh, your worst loss? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I lost to a, a guy that I would later be a teammate with at Harvard. Uh, I was seated in the New England Junior Championships, and I lost early in it, and, and I just couldn't quite believe it. So... There's probably a lot of those. <laughs> Your toughest opponent. Oh boy. Listen, this could be your college. This could be any. This could be a uh, coach. This could be anything you want to talk. Yeah. To. Whatever comes in your mind, coach. Well, it's interesting. I'd say that we had a fantastic rivalry with Columbia. We had a fantastic rivalry with uh, with Princeton. Um, um, David Benjamin was the architect of the ITA as we know it, and was the Princeton coach and Bid Goswami. Um, and we went toe to toe so many times and had these, you know, barn burners of matches with fierce competition and partisanship. And, and so those were the ones that you remember. Uh, and yeah, they stick in your memory. Your favorite tournament. Oh God. Uh, Wimbledon is just really fun to go, but I've never been to the French or the Australian. Uh, really? Hope to, hope to one day. Yeah. Your favorite city. I love Boston. Your favorite court can obviously be any court in the world. Oh, wow. I used to love my red clay courts back at my little club in uh, Newton called the Wobbin Neighborhood Club. And that's, that's, that's where I cut my teeth on it. And so that's favorite. And that's uh, favorite. What's the name of the club? It used to be the Wobbin Neighborhood Club until years later, we find out that it wasn't quite open to everybody in the neighborhood. Right. <laughs> So, so they renamed it. <laughs> Your favorite forehand? Oh, God. Well, James Blake had a damn good forehand. They had an unbelievable forehand. Your favorite backhand? 
Warenka is, uh, that's what I'm doing now. I mean, if I had his shoulders, you know, it would be better. But God, is that fun to watch. Your favorite volleys? Uh, Ken Rosewall had them. You know, and most of the people listening to this won't even know who Ken Rosewall is. No, that's not true. Our our group is uh, don't don't underestimate me. Don't underestimate underestimate my group, Coach. My, my, <laughs> uh, they're they're connoisseurs of the game. And your favorite serve? Oh, my favorite serve, Pancho Gonzalez. Pancho Gonzalez just had something. It's like watching honey dripping. It was just like a waterfall. Harvard University. Is that a question? I say it, you say what comes in your mind. Excellent. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the cliche is that it's elite, but it's got the most fantastic financial aid um, system in the world. So it, it, it's open to everybody in the world. That's what's incredible about it. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport, I think I know the answer to this, maybe, but what would it be? You do. Well, it, it's converting more of the world to level-based play. That, sing, that, to me, is the single point of leverage. If you talk about Archimedes saying, you know, give me a lever long enough and I can move the world, that's the single one point of leverage, that if we all put our heads together and we stop competing against each other, tennis around the world would become accessible for millions more people. Coach Dave Fish, this has been a great chat. I can't thank you enough. You know, uh, it's not it's not easy to get to these Harvard people, so uh, I do appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you. Well, thank you for inviting me. Coach Dave Fish, have a terrific rest of your uh, week, and also, you know, enjoy the springtime in Boston. There's nothing like that. Right. There's just nothing like that when the Red Sox come to town, even though we're not going to be able to go to the games. There's just nothing like springtime in Boston. That's right. You're right. Well, come back and visit us. Dave Fish, you are released. Thank you very much. Take care. Huge thank you to Dave Fish, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. If you have not done it yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. That is the name of the game. And share the show with your friends. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.